So turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Numbers and chapter 11. I don't know if you've had enough of plagues yet. Uh, we've got one on the country, on the planet. We had one this morning, a plague of snakes. And we have one this evening as well, courtesy of Numbers chapter 11, a plague of quail. But before we read the pertinent verses, once again, we need some context. Uh, it's the same context, essentially, as this morning. The people of God have been released from the slavery in Egypt. They've been taken to a promised land. And on the way there, God is sustaining them. The Lord is going with them in that wilderness wandering, giving them everything that they need. Food and water miraculously appearing for them. Uh, the manna feeding them every day, the water from the rock. All their needs are being met by the Lord who is shepherding them through the wilderness. And then we come to Numbers chapter 11. Now, Numbers chapter 11 is like uh, a bit like a plait, you know, where we've got strands that are all tied together. And you've got two stories, basically, in Numbers 11 that are twisted together. And we're following just one of them, which means we have to break up the reading a little bit. So we'll start at verse 4, Numbers 11 and verse 4. Now, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we freely ate in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its colour like the colour of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar. They cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. And then skip down to verse 18. 18. This is the Lord now speaking to Moses. He says, then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. You shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat to eat, and you shall eat. You shall eat, not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? And then skip down to verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day 
all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered 10 homers. That's about uh, uh, 2,200 litres, according to one of my study Bibles. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava, because they had buried the people who had yielded to craving. Okay, so that's our reading. That's uh, what the passage we're looking at now. Now, um, I come from a little place in the valley. It's called Mysukuma. Mysukuma once had seven church buildings that were all open and functioning at the same time. And each of those buildings held quite comfortably 200 people or more. And that was while Mysukuma had a population of fewer than 2,000 people. I want to ask you a question to begin the sermon. Why? Why is Wales so full of derelict and closed church buildings? God willing, we'll see something of an answer to that question from Numbers 11 as we look at three things together. First of all, we'll see contempt, and then we'll see craving, and then we shall see complaint. Three C's. The first one then, contempt. Where is the contempt in verse 6? Now, I understand that contempt isn't uh, the most common word in the world at the moment, so uh, I I did you the favour of googling this one for you. Contempt is feeling something is worthless or beneath consideration. Something's worthless. So where is that contempt? Do you see it there in verse 6? There's nothing here except this manner. This, ma- this worthless manner, we don't want it. Do you remember? That's how they talked about it in Numbers 21 that we read this morning as well, wasn't it? This worthless manner. These people that the Lord has looked after so well, they say that they've lost their appetite. They are sick to death of this bread, this miraculous bread which rains from heaven. They are sick of it. The food of angels, the psalm says. Now, that's what happens first. And I wonder, after verse 6, do you have a paragraph break in your Bibles? In your translation, is there a paragraph break between 6 and 7? Because in verse 7, Moses breaks the narrative. He breaks it and it goes off on a tangent. And it's, it's almost funny if you think about it. It's almost funny to our 21st century ears. He goes off on this tangent to explain how wonderful the manner was it's a bit like an advert pause in a tv drama we've got this drama unfolding and then the people hold the manner in contempt and moses goes now hang on a second let's just talk about how great this manner was if you look at verse 8 it says it could be ground it could be crushed it could be cooked and fried it could be baked it was like it was savory like oil and yet it was sweet like honey. It never, ever rotted away. Did you know that? 
it was always enough. It didn't matter how much you collected because you never had anything left over. It didn't matter how little you collected because it was always enough. The people were never hungry. They were eating this free food from heaven, the Lord's provision for them in their journey. Now, I want you to remember this next bit because we'll come back to it later. Why did the Lord give manna? What was it for? Manna was the Lord's chosen means to sustain this people all the way home. That's what it was for. Remember that. It was the Lord's chosen way to make sure that they would get home in one piece. They were to live by faith, daily drawing strength from this wonderful, gracious gift of bread from heaven. How did the people feel? How did they think about what God had given them to get them home? Familiarity. It seems bread contempt. And so they despised it. What God gave them to get them home, they despised. Now, many of us will have food literally delivered to our doorsteps. I know a lot of people do that and probably more now during lockdown and things. But imagine waking up daily, every day, every single day to find free food on your doorstep. Free food delivered from heaven. That's what this situation was. You can see that there in verse 9 and remember Psalm 87. Free food literally delivered to their doorsteps from heaven. That's what they held in contempt. The next thing we have here is a craving. I wonder, you saw that, that word comes up a few times in uh, the translation that we read from. Did you see what did they crave? What was it that they craved? So they're in verses 4 and 5, and it's in verse 13 as well. Not content with the Lord's over-the-top, generous, supernatural, miraculous provision, they want more. They want meat. Now, at this point, it's important that um, we must get out of our minds straight away the idea that Israel was malnourished. Poor, skinny Israel. They must have been positively anemic without any meat in their diets. How sad, living just on manna. We must get that out of our heads because they already had plenty of meat. Exodus tells us the story of when the people of God left Egypt. And it says when they came out from Egypt, they brought plenty of meat with them from Egypt. And how exactly do you think they kept all of those sacrifices that we read about in the law? They had plenty of meat and an excess that was needed for the sacrifices. And in those sacrifices, they were legally required to eat the meat. No, these people, they didn't want meat for lack of it. 
They wanted free meat to rain from heaven like the manna, like spoiled children. They wanted more for free. Was that all that they craved? What else did they crave? You see it in verse 5, but quite particularly you see it in verse 19. Not 19, sorry, in verse 18 there is. For it was well with us in Egypt. It gets worse, doesn't it? They didn't just crave meat, they wanted Egypt. They entertained these crazy just pipe dreams about bottomless pots of meat and all of their wishes come true and all of the delicious onions and garlic and all sorts. It just doesn't sound very nice, but that's what they wanted. They wanted Egypt. They forgot the sting of the whip and the wound of the scourge. They forgot the stonings. They forgot the beatings. They forgot the endless slavery. They forgot the merciless infanticide of their sons. These people in craving after Egypt say, we would rather be slaves of Pharaoh, the pagan tyrant, than children and heirs of the living God who bore us on eagles' wings and shepherded us to the ends of the earth. Now, careful listeners at this point may be feeling a spot short changed, since all that we've done is really run through the narrative. It really is nothing more than you could all do uh, yourselves at home in reading the scriptures. So let's get a little bit more under the surface here. Let's see what's going on as we look at the complaint. Look at the complaint. I wonder, have you ever heard a sermon on complaining? There needs to be a real great care and clarity when we speak about complaints in the Bible and in Christian faith. Because there are those who teach us, I wonder if you've heard this yourself, never to complain. Never complain to the Lord, they say. But take whatever hardship that you have, like it's the best thing that ever happened to you. You're lonely, you're bereaved, you're redundant, your business is really struggling, your marriage is struggling, your kids are off the rails, you failed your exams, you haven't got into university, whatever it may be, in church, you smile. This is what our pastor has called once uh, Cheshire Cat Christianity. And I think he's onto something there. The sort of Christianity that's just a great big smile. But behind it, there's nothing at all. That sort of teaching, it brings an elephant into the room, doesn't it? Because I know and you know that our hearts and our mouths are full of complaints, sorrow, angst. Pain, discouragement, distress. We each have days, don't we, when, like these people, our fathers in the wilderness, we say our whole being is just dried up. 
Now, church, you know, is a fantastic and God-given way for helping us get through life together as brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. And I do believe that uh, we're blessed as a church here at Heath that we have plenty of people who are just like that, willing, eager and ready to get alongside us and help us through these difficult times. But there is nobody, absolutely nobody like the Lord Jesus who can empathize with us in all of our weaknesses, who has been tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. He is the one to go to with your complaints. What does the Bible say about complaints? Can you think of any verses? Far from teaching us to never complain to the Lord, the Bible tells us to complain to him and gives us examples. How about this one? It's a favourite of many of ours. 1 Peter 5, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Wrote Psalm 142, I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell all my trouble. And what about Exodus 3, that got the people delivered from Egypt in the first place? The Lord stands before Moses and says, I have heard their complaints. It's something that we ought to do, the Bible says, complain to the Lord God, saying, Lord, you are the only help I have. And you know, the Lord God, he loves to hear that. He loves to hear our complaints when we come to him and say, you are the only one who can help me. And so we pour out our hearts before him. Is that, is that the sort of complaining to the Lord that we read of in Numbers 11? you look at verses 4 through 15 and just scan over that and read the complaint that the people made do you notice how the Lord is conspicuously absent from all of their complaining no they're not complaining to him they're complaining against him they're complaining against him to others Taking it for granted that the Lord will not or cannot provide for them, they go looking for it elsewhere. Look there in verse 13, because it says, They weep all over me, Moses says. They weep all over me, telling me their problems, bringing to me their complaints about you. They're complaining about their father's chosen way. They're complaining about the means that God has given to them to get them to the promised land. They're rejecting the daily living bread. They're rejecting that daily bread that the Lord has given to them. They're craving after anything else. They want meat, they want leeks, they want onions, they want Egypt, anything but this worthless manna. They say to the Lord who is amongst them, Lord, you have freed us. You have protected us, provided for us. You've promised us a land for ourselves. You've preserved us in the desert all of these years. But we think it's worthless. You won't or you can't make good on your promises. We want more. We want it for free. We want it from someone else because you are our problem. 
The Lord's response to this complaint comes in verses 18 to 20 and verses 31 to 35. He sends to them for their complaint and their craving and their contempt a murmuration. Have you ever seen a murmuration? A murmuration is when you have flocks of birds in the sky that are so numerous and so dense that it looks like a sort of 3D moving blob. Have you seen them maybe on David Attenborough? And they fly through the air, such massive clouds of them that you can barely see what it is. And it's just so many birds. Enormous flocks of quail surround the camp. And we have some difficult to interpret verses there from, uh, let's see, verse 31 onwards there, where it talks about uh, birds coming on this side, that's a day's journey and so many cubits and all that. Quite hard to interpret, apparently, but this is the upshot of it, whatever your interpretation is. It's quail, quail, more quail, a lot of quail. That's what, this, that's what these verses mean. That God has super provided over the top for all of their wants, for all of their cravings. But you know, although he has provided everything that they want, it's no blessing to them at all. It's a curse. It's a curse to them. It's a curse in three ways. Very quickly, first of all, they despised the provision of the manna. They held that in contempt, and now it's buried under mountains of quail, and they can't get at it. Verse 31. Secondly, they wanted meat, and now they have it. They have it coming out of their noses, verse 20, and they're sick to death of it. Thirdly, they wanted the land of plagues back, and now they have that too. In verse 33. Now, you'll be pleased to hear that as we seek to apply this message, the application goes much deeper than just be careful what you grumble for because you might get it. Let's see, how can we apply this to ourselves? Well, do you know who preached the greatest sermon ever on this sort of thing? It was our saviour, the Lord Jesus. Let's see what he has to say about it when he applies this to us. In John 6 and verse 32, Jesus is preaching to a crowd of people and he says that the manna was a big signpost pointing to him, the true bread of heaven. Therefore, when you and I read about manna like we are doing this evening, we must think about him. Let me repeat that because it is so important and it changes how we read our Bibles. Jesus says that the manna points to him. That's what it is. That's what it's for. And so when we read about that manna, we have to, we must, we are constrained to think about the Lord Jesus. So how do we tie all these things together then? Contempt and craving, complaint, manna, Jesus, quail. How do we bring all these things together? Well, in Numbers 11, the people were called to live by faith in the daily provision of bread from heaven to get them to the promised land. And today, 
you and I, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus, we must live by faith in the daily provision of the bread from heaven, Jesus, to get us to glory. You and I, we rely on Jesus every day to meet all of his promises and to get us home. Jesus Christ is the staple of the church and every believer. To see it through, to overcome, to reach the goal, to get home, to finish the race well, we need eyes on him. We need to be drawing everything, all of our resources and all of our strength and energy from him, our daily bread. We need eyes on him to be trusting him. We need faith in him. We need to be thinking of him all the time. We need to be speaking to him. We need to be uh, so obsessed with him, really. We need to be singing to him. And when we eat our breakfast, think of him. And when we put our pajamas on, think of him. He is the object of our faith. He will get us home. We run our race with eyes fixed on Jesus and nothing else. Not holding our Saviour in contempt, not craving after other things, not complaining of him, but complaining to him, saying, Lord, you are my only hope. And in this wilderness of a world, you are my only food. Help me. And this is where it all really comes to us. How do we think? How do we feel? How do we respond to these things which God has given to us to get us home? Our God has committed us and entrusted the church to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading about him, singing about him, praying to him, fellowship in him preaching Jesus, growing more like Jesus. Everything about him. We are committed to him and to him alone. So let me ask you. Do we believe, individually and as a church, that it is these simple staples that will see us through or not? Do we trust and obey, saying, yes, what you have given to us, Father, what you have done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ is marvellous. It is supernatural. It's over the top. It's more than sufficient to meet all of our needs, to sanctify us, perfect us, equip us, ready us for glory. Or do we find in our hearts craving? an insatiable dissatisfaction with church, a, a, a craving for other things than the Lord Jesus Christ, a need and a desire to have anything else from elsewhere. Things, oh, I wish I had that because then I'd be so much more comfortable in my Christian life. I'd be more, that would just be so much more preferable, so much bigger, so much better. And if I may, we must particularly guard our hearts at this time when we, are, when we are necessarily having to use and explore other things for our church. We must make sure that our eyes and our, our faith is fixed on Jesus Christ and on him alone, that we must not crave after other things. Now let me qualify that. I am not talking about style or method. After all, as we just read, there were many recipes for the manna. 
And the Bible didn't give us the hymn sandwich like we use every Sunday, nor did it give us drum kits. No, I'm not asking you about what the Lord has not given to us. I'm asking you about what he has given to us. What do you think about what he has given? Daily persevering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is more than sufficient, more than enough to get us home safely. All right then, but how risky is it really to crave after other things? What if I do crave for other things? If we crave after other means of getting home, God may very well give them to us. But they shan't be a blessing. They'll be a curse to us. Many of you will know better than I do that some churches have craved prosperity. And do you know what happens when they crave prosperity? They become prosperous. They get it. But it's become a curse to them because prosperity will not get you to glory. Some churches have craved after a social vibe, and now they have it. But it's a curse to them because popularity will not get you home. Neither will full churches, nor will rich churches, nor will bursting churches, nor will churches with a really good social media, nor will student churches or really slick YouTube churches. What church with daily eyes, ears, mouths, prayers for the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, the staple manner of the church, they will, uh, will endure, will persevere to the very end. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with different types of churches, like rich and bursting and student, social media, whatever, but those things in and of themselves, they don't do us any good at all. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, only he can get us home. Eyes on him. As we draw to a close now, let me um, begin to return to the question that we asked at the beginning. Um, have you ever heard of a, a pastor called Joel Beakey? He's a pastor out in the States, in America. And uh, he's a good preacher, and you can uh, YouTube some of his sermons if you want. They're very good. And uh, he once spoke about uh, one of his previous pastorates, and um, he was having trouble in the church. And some of his leaders came to him and said, look here, Mr. Beaky, all we hear from you in the pulpit is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They held in contempt the daily bread. They held in contempt that one thing that the Lord God had given to them to get them to glory. And that is why there are six closed churches in my Sikuma. That is why there are derelict buildings all over the country covered with the ivy of boredom with Jesus Christ. They became bored of him and contemptuous of prayer, contemptuous of the Bible, complaining about fellowship with the real Lord Jesus Christ. And they replaced him with their cravings, which they thought was better. And so they stopped meeting. Before long, it was too late. What they had discarded, what they had held in contempt, when they threw away the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, when they threw that away, God took it away. And now look at them. 
All of these churches are called Kibroth Hatava, graves of craving. And they look like graves, don't they? They just look like tombstones all over the country. And they serve as a warning to us that we must treasure and love and adore and guard our appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. All right then. What has God given to you to get you home? The Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? What do you think about him? Is he something to hold in contempt? Is he something that's all right, that's nice, but I'm going to crave other things besides? Or is he all in all? Let us love what God has given to us. Let us love his son. Let us love the Lord Jesus Christ, the manner of the church, and feed on him as he commands us every day, drawing strength, drawing grace, drawing all that we need from him. Because he is more than enough for us. You know, he will build his church. As Ephesians says, he will build his church on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets who preached nothing more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Press on, each of you, each of us, myself included, included, press on to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He will see you through. I'm going to read a few words from the book of Hebrews, and then I'll pray, and then we'll have our last song together. Hebrews 12. Verses 1 to 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, all of these other things, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus Christ, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand on the throne of God. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for caring so well for our fathers in the wilderness, that you met their every need with the manna, and you even provided for all of their wants, Oh, Lord, we pray that you should give us a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which endures to the very end. Teach us all over again, every day, Lord. Teach us the value of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, in the daily discipline of having our eyes fixed on him and drawing from him. Forgive us, Lord, for those times that we have craved after other things, as if anything besides him could get us home. Give us over to a single, a single, whole, only, exclusive vision for the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. Protect his cause, we pray, in our church and protect us, we pray. Keep us faithful to him and to his gospel at all times. We bless and thank you for him who is more than sufficient to achieve all of your ends for us in love. We thank you for your promises that are yes and amen in him. And now, Lord, we pray that you should bless our families, bless our sleep, bless our time we spend together now in fellowship. We pray that you should give us over, Lord, to fruitful, 
discussions about the Saviour and that you should bless us in our sleep, that as our heads hit the pillow, we should remember and recall and count our blessings. The sovereign God has been so good to us. Lord, give us prayers and thoughts and love for the Saviour that we have not known before, for he is worth it, he is worthy, he is all in all to us. In his name we pray. Amen.